Amen. Amen. Grateful to be standing here this morning. Many of you guys know I got COVID way back in August and of last year at the tail end of my sabbatical, and I've been struggling with pretty, pretty bad body aches and fatigue since then. Well, I got the first vaccine shot on Friday, and I was aching on every inch of my body yesterday, so I wasn't sure about this morning, but I am glad to be here gathered and able to preach uh, with you guys here this morning on Palm Sunday, looking at Jesus as king, but not a king like this world, a king who was crucified in our place. This is the day that we remember and we celebrate the fact that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. He is indeed the king of the Jews, more than that, the king of the entire world. Two weeks ago, starting this series, we looked at the anointing of Jesus for his burial. Last week, we looked at the Garden of Gethsemane. Today, I want us to look at Jesus as he stands before Pilate and a lowly criminal, Barabbas, is chosen in his place. You know, and sometimes, sometimes life really is stranger than fiction. I mean, you couldn't make this up, but what we see here is really the ultimate real-life parable of substitutionary atonement. That's a big theological term, but if you're going to learn one theological phrase, learn that one. <laughs> he is our substitute who bears God's judgment in our place. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And we see, friends, a perfect example of this in Barabbas. In one sense, we are all Barabbas. Look with me at Matthew 27, verses 11 all the way up to 26. Matthew 27, 11 to 26, Jesus the King was crucified in our place. We read this, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas, and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water 
and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. We see Jesus as the true king, but a king who's crucified in our place. See where we're going here. First, in 11 to 13, that Jesus is the innocent and the true king. Then 14 to 23, that large section about Barabbas, Jesus is the substitute for sinners. And then finally, 24 to 26, Jesus is crucified, is the crucified savior for us. So 11 to 13, what do we see? Jesus is brought before Pilate. Pilate is the governor. He is a Roman. He's placed there by Caesar himself. And he's sort of the guy in charge, particularly of Jerusalem. Probably the most powerful man in Israel. Maybe King Herod, although Herod was replaced by his four sons and divided it up. So probably the most powerful man there in Israel. And Jerusalem is his headquarters. Now, you've got to understand, nobody, no Roman wanted to go to Jerusalem, okay? It's a city that was known for revolts and rebellions. Soldiers got killed there. There's a people that were notoriously difficult to govern. In fact, the Roman Empire had certain rules of justice over most of the known world at that time. And they actually made exceptions, certain exceptions for Israel because they realized we can't govern these people normally. They just, they they would rather die, (laughs) than actually follow what Roman justice is. So they make certain exceptions, and Pilate gets placed there. By the way, we know a little bit about Pilate outside of what the scriptures tell us. Not a good man, okay? A brutal, harsh ruler. But what a picture. You have Jesus next to Pilate. Now, you think about it. In in that time, you couldn't have really thought of a more sort of outweighted situation. Most powerful man in Israel has the power of Caesar behind him and a, essentially a peasant, uh, a son of a carpenter, no known education, holds no specific office. When in reality, it's the exact opposite, isn't it? One of them is truly the king of the universe and Pilate is just a come-and-go politician that we would never even remember his name if it wasn't for this. <laughs> he would have been lost to the annals of history. But Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews. Now the reason for that is pretty simple. The Jewish leaders there, the Sanhedrin, uh, they don't like Jesus. If you haven't heard that before. They did not like him. They were jealous of him. They were envious of him. The crowds followed him. They liked what he had to say. Jesus didn't follow their traditions. It was a real problem. But if they go to Pilate and say, Jesus is a false teacher, or Jesus has these religious claims that differ from our traditions, or we just don't like the guy, (laughs) Pilate's going to say, I don't care about that. Take him away from here. What are you even doing? But if you claim to be a king, there's a problem. Nobody is king but Caesar and those whom Caesar allows to rule underneath him. That's treason. So when Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Notice Jesus' response is, you have said so. That's not a yes or a no, is it? (laughs) You have said so. It's your claim. Not a denial. It's not a clear affirmation. Because Jesus knows that at the end of the day, they're not really after the truth here. He knows that he is now submitted to the Father's will. He's resigned to do what God calls him to do. 
In fact, after that statement, he makes no other defense. The priests, the elders, they continue to accuse him, bring out all these different charges, probably talking about Jesus said, don't pay taxes to Caesar or whatever. There's a greater authority that we have to obey than Caesar and so forth. And Jesus just stands there and gives no answer. You ever heard of uh, silence that is deafening, (laughs) right? That's Jesus right here. He knows that there's no pursuit of the truth. And so he makes no effort to defend himself. So much so that Pilate is just amazed that a man would just stand there and accused. And friends, the reason why is he's not guilty. If somebody sort of accuses you of something, if somebody says, Pastor Rick, you're a liar. (laughs) You know, I'm going to defend myself. What are you talking about? What did I lie about? And and then I'm going to get into a debate and I'm going to try to defend myself, right? Because the truth of the matter is, I, I don't think I'm a liar, but I'm a sinner. And there could be a sense in which this is true to some degree or something. If I was completely confident in my innocence, I would need to say nothing. It would be obvious to everyone. Jesus just stands there. Now, we have to ask the question, is he the king of the Jews? Is what he's saying true? And the answer is yes and no, which is why Jesus doesn't give a clear affirmation. So, yes, of course he is the king of the Jews. He is the one who comes as the lion of the tribe of of Judah. Way back in the very beginning of time, it said that one from Judah, the lion of Judah, will arise and the scepter will not depart from him and he will become the ruler. And that, of course, the, the kingly line of the southern kingdom of Israel goes through David and Solomon and onward all the way up until Jesus himself, and he is clearly in the line of the kings. But he's not a king like this world. He's not a king like Caesar or Herod or governor like Pilate. And he's not just the king of the Jews. Even that would be too limiting in one sense. He's the king of the world. He's the king of kings. He's the king who is sovereign over everyone. And even the charge against him doesn't really fit because God ultimately places into authority lesser people like Caesar, like Pilate. They're only there as God allows, and God could remove them from office at any point in time. They're placed in authority. So the idea of this being treason is is actually a false accusation. God is allowing Caesar into place, and Jesus' kingship doesn't replace Caesar. In fact, God raises up Caesars and removes them and so forth and does it over and over. And as Jesus said, his kingdom is a different type of kingdom. It's not a kingdom of this world. He's the cosmic king. He's the king that all other kings are a shadow of. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that he's the king? I think because we, in our very souls, we want a king. (laughs) We want someone who is a head, a leader, an authority, somebody who's in control. We don't want to think all of life is ultimately sort of a a (laughs) crapshoot. That it's all up to chance and there's no one that's actually in charge of anything. And it's all just happening on its own. Somebody's got to be in control of this. In fact, that goes right back to Adam, of course. Adam was given dominion to rule over the earth. He failed miserably. He was the one who was truly treasonous. Treason is against God. He rebelled. He sinned. He failed. And here we have the true king. 
Now, I know as Americans, <laughs> we, don't, we don't like kings, right? Because we rebelled against King George III uh, many, many years ago. And we said, no more kings. Kings are no good. Uh, but the reason for that is pretty obvious because of corruption. Because no king actually rules correctly. No king rules in true honesty. And yet we can't really take that out of us. We still sort of long for a king. In fact, uh, over the summer, this last summer, I got an opportunity to travel all over the place, but we went to uh, South Dakota and got to see Mount Rushmore. And what do you see there on Mount Rushmore? But what, I mean, no, these are supposed to be just politicians, three equal sets of branches in our country. One of them is the executive and somebody heads that up. But what do we do? We carve their heads in stone in the side of a mountain, right? We want to make sure that we are honoring and venerating these great leaders. By the way, did anyone know what the four presidents are on Mount Rushmore? See if you can, you can guess it there in your head. I'll mention it in just a bit here. But in Jesus, we find what? The one who is truly good. The one who needs, needs to make no defense of himself because he is innocent. Truth is, friends, we need a king. We need a king who transcends this fallen and sinful world. One who is truly in control. The greatest kings of Israel's history pale in comparison to this king. David and Solomon and Hezekiah in Josiah. The greatest kings of the ancient world in all their glory can't hold a candle to Jesus, the Nebuchadnezzars and the Xerxes and the Dariuses and the Augustuses. The most powerful rulers of all time, Alexander and Genghis Khan and Charlemagne and Queen Victoria are nothing to this king Every pharaoh and Caesar and sultan and czar and emperor who has ever lived. There is one nobler than Washington, smarter than Jefferson, more just than Lincoln, and braver than Roosevelt. In fact, even our fictional kings can't compare. The Arthurs and the Aslans and the Aragorns to the true king who came to give his life for us as his people. Which is exactly what we see start to happen next. 14 to 23, Jesus is the substitute for sinners. We come to Barabbas. It was the custom of Pilate to release one prisoner. This was the feast. It was a big feast for Israel. Again, this is a difficult part of the world to govern for Rome, so he sort of gives them an olive branch. Okay, if you, if I just sort of release one of these prisoners, one of these Jewish prisoners that have been captured and condemned, then maybe that will appease you that I'm not such a harsh ruler after all, and that'll sort of lessen the revolts. And Pilate here is being a, a politician, and, and he, is, he thinks he's got a slam dunk because he knows that the crowds love Jesus. Right? He's a very, very popular rabbi. He saw a week earlier, or less than a week earlier, Jesus coming in on a donkey and people laying down their palm branches and their robes right there in the street. He knows that he's the one. This is a slam dunk. They're going to choose Jesus. And so let me just pull out this just horrible, notorious criminal Barabbas. This guy was literally a murderer. He was revolting against Rome. 
probably uh, killed a Roman soldier or something like that. Uh, just a scum of the earth type person in the eyes of Pilate. And he presents them before the crowd and says, who should I release? And actually Matthew tells us, because he knew that it was out of envy that they wanted to condemn Jesus to begin with. What he didn't calculate is a couple of things. One, that the crowds a week ago are a different crowd here. Most of the crowds a week ago that claimed him as king, Hosanna, um, were Galileans and so forth. The surrounding area that came into Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. By week's end, most of them have gone home. Who's left but most of the natives there in, who lived around Jerusalem. But more than that, it says specifically that the Sanhedrin, remember the Sanhedrin, they actually had their own guards, they had their own soldiers. They got to the crowd. They probably threatened them. If you, if you call out Jesus, you know, you're going to be in trouble. We're going we're to take some serious issues here. He's a false teacher. He's a cult leader. Don't go after him. And the crowd has been prepped and ready. Pilate, we learn also here, has a wife who has a dream. Now, you understand that Romans took dreams, particularly Roman officials, took dreams very seriously. Every dream you have is not necessarily God speaking. God can speak through a dream. That doesn't mean dreams are always God speaking. Dreams are just what our minds do when we're sleeping. We're unconscious. Our minds needs to do something. But God can, and in here it seems to do. He warns Pilate's wife, have nothing to do with that man. He is righteous. He's innocent. Well, Pilate presents them with their decision. They call for Barabbas. And then Pilate foolishly asks, well, what then of Jesus? And the crowd, who is now whipped into a complete frenzy, calls out for the maximum sentence of crucifixion. We'll look more at that a little later. Who is this Barabbas guy? What is this story here in the Bible for? Uh, first of all, it's the clearest sort of depiction of injustice you can imagine. You guys know the, the idea of lady justice with the blindfold holding the scales, right, and trying to, to judge the situation correctly. You, you couldn't ask for a more unjust situation than we have here. A clearly guilty man, Barabbas, goes free, and a clearly innocent man gets the worst and most horrendous punishment you could imagine. We, we learn he's a notorious prisoner, an insurrectionist, a zealot, and we learn from the other Gospels he was a murderer. Now, here's something you may have missed. His name literally means son of the father. Bar Abbas. Um, Abba was pro- may have been a sort of local zealot leader, and so he was called Bar Abbas. That's at least one theory, but his name literally means son of the father. And his name, that's sort of his nickname. You know what his name was? We get this not clearly in the ESV, but the NIV has it, and it's clearly in the Greek. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus Barabbas. And he's set by side. Jesus, the son of the father, next to Jesus, the true son of the father, the righteous one. And Jesus literally takes his place. The one who should have been crucified. You know, you ever think of the fact that there were three crosses set up before Pilate even knew that Jesus would end up on that cross. Who was that middle cross put up for? Almost certainly for Barabbas. And Jesus literally takes his place. 
we have here, friends, is a picture to us of substitutionary atonement. I am Barabbas. You are Barabbas. And we were on our way to judgment. And Jesus took our place. Friends, this is what the sacrificial system had symbolized for centuries and centuries that a sin, our sins could be, in a sense, put on a goat or a bull or a lamb. Not really, but symbolically, which pointed forward to the true sacrifice, the Lamb of God. Imagine you owe a debt, a debt so great that you, you could try to pay it, but you'll never be able to. Now, what can happen to that debt? Can just anyone forgive it? No. I mean, if, if I said, you know what, don't worry about that debt, <laughs> uh, the person whom you owe that money to will say, wait a minute, that's not yours to do, right? You can't pardon that debt. Only I can do that. So one, you can pay that debt for all eternity, or you can be forgiven by the one you owe the debt to. And the only way for him or her to forgive that debt is to absorb the loss themselves. In Christ, we see God absorbing the debt of sin upon himself for those who believe in him. Friends, this is why, by the way, anyone, anyone can be saved. Anyone. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter how heinous your sin. It doesn't matter how bad you've messed things up. We have one who takes our place on the cross. And what do we do then? We live in gratitude for his, for his grace, for, in grace for what he has done for us. <laughs> it's all finished. He dies our death. In uh, the TV show, Sherlock, which I really like, Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch. There's this one part, I'm going to ruin the show for you, okay? So if you've never seen it and you want to watch it, cover yours. But Watson, Sherlock's famous partner there, his wife dies for Sherlock. And this is his response. In saving my life, she conferred a value on it. It is a currency I do not know how to spend. In saving my life, Christ has conferred a value on it. It is a currency I do not know how to spend. but a life of gratitude to him for his grace. 24 to 26, we see that Jesus is crucified for us. I'm not going to go into the details of this crucifixion, which is the following section. Come on Good Friday, and that'll be part of our meditation on that. But Jesus is taken out to be crucified. Pilate sees that he's gaining nothing. Uh, They're getting more and more entrenched in their view, calling out for his crucifixion. In fact, he's seeing that a riot is starting. Again, this is a dangerous place to be a governor. And so he's at his wit's end, and he comes back with one last symbolic act. And by the way, there isn't any history of this sort of symbolic act in Roman history. Uh, But it's so obvious, I think we all can get what's going on here. He brings out some water, and he washes his hands in front of the crowd, as if to say, I'm innocent of this man's blood It's on you guys. I didn't want to put him to death at all. It's on you. Now let me just say, that doesn't get Pilate off the hook. That's that's what he thinks it does, but it doesn't. 
if a judge here in Haverhill condemned a clearly, obviously innocent man, uh, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be able to he wouldn't be able to say, "Well, I wash my hands because that's what the people in the city wanted." Right? No, you're a judge, Pilate. You're responsible for his life. But I think Matthew includes it here to make a statement: even the Romans see nothing wrong with this man. No guilt. He is innocent. He is righteous. And the people answer with a truly wicked response. Again, whipped into a frenzy, his blood be on us and on our children. And friends, in some ways, they're taking the gospel and twisting it in its most ugly sense. Whereas our guilt gets put on Jesus, they are wishing this guilt upon their own descendants. Pilate releases Barabbas, just like that. Heading to, the cru- to be crucified, heading to his own death, an incredible, unimaginable suffering, and the shackles are removed, and he walks out free. I don't, I don't, can you imagine what it would be like to be Barabbas at that moment? I think this is how, this, is what it, this would be the emotional roller coaster. First, celebration. Right? I can't believe it. I thought I was dead. I thought I was heading to the most horrendous form of death, and then overwhelming guilt as he watches an innocent man head to the doom that he was supposed to go to. He's scourged. By the way, scourging was a brutal and horrendous thing. It was these three, this three-pronged whip filled with glass and broken sort of things and that you would whip it across a person's back and then drag it. It wasn't like a quick whip. It was a dragging it across their back, ripping open their flesh, which oftentimes would lead to someone's death. We have plenty of examples of people who die from the scourging. They never make it to the cross and then led out to crucifixion. Crucifixion was a horrendous and terrifying way to die. Here's one description by a historian, not a Christian believer, as we would understand it, but this is what he writes, no death was more excruciating, more contemptible than crucifixion, to be hung naked, long in agony, swelling with ugly wheels. Which is a quote from Seneca, that part. Shoulders and chest, helpless to beat away the clamorous birds. Such a fate, Roman intellectuals agreed, was the worst imaginable. So foul was the carrion reek of their disgrace that many felt tainted even by viewing a crucifixion. Some deaths were so vile, so squalid, that it was best to draw a veil across them entirely. Only the scum of the earth, again in their view, end up on the cross. Friends, when you think of the cross, the world has been turned upside down, right? We wear a cross as a form of jewelry, which is nothing wrong with that. We decorate our buildings and our houses with them. We venerate the cross. Back then, it would have been a terrifying picture. The very idea of a cross would give kids nightmares. But in Jesus, the last become first. The sufferer is glorified. The rejected is remembered. We're so shaped by the Christian faith, we don't even realize how he turned the world upside down. As we look at the cross, if you are not a Christian here, again, so glad you're here. If you are watching online, here is where you begin. You come to the substitute for sinners, Jesus Christ. 
if you are a Christian, which I think is the majority of us here, here is where you remain. Never forget. Never let it grow dull. Never lose sight of the sacrifice of our Savior for us. There's no one like him. (laughs) Study history, study religion, study philosophy, study art. There's no one like him. Not even close. He died for you. Personally. It's Martin Luther that said that the we's and the us's of the Christian faith need to become I's and me. And this is what he meant. It's not enough to say Christ died for us. (laughs) That we have a savior. Can you say that Christ died for me? I need a savior. I'm Barabbas. I deserve the cross and Christ took my place. This let, let's let this sink in as a church. Jesus is a king, the greatest king, the king of kings, but a king crucified in our place. When you think of kings, what do you think of? You think of the powerful, riding on a war horse, filled with pomp, Majesty surrounds them, glory, entourages of armies and soldiers and advisors, thrones and crowns. (laughs) But even we know a good king, a good king serves his people. He sacrifices his own energy, his own time, his own life in a sense to serve those he's called to govern. In Jesus we see one without all the pomp who comes in humility riding on a donkey, who comes with no entourage, abandoned and forsaken and betrayed by all of his disciples, not clothed in fine robes, but naked and beaten and bloodied, no crown on his head, but thorns. But he's come to save us, to do what is necessary to make us his own. And he will come again. And when he comes again, he comes not as the lamb slain, but as the lion for his people. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, this morning I do pray, maybe there are some watching online or maybe even here in person who have not come to see Jesus as there, as your personal Savior, as as someone they know intimately themselves, recognizing their own personal sin, their own need of a Savior, and have come to him and to look to him as that very thing, the King who's come to redeem us. For all of us who are in Christ and know him and have been walking with him, Lord, keep us renewed, keep us fresh in our understanding of the sacrifice of our Savior. Remind us again and again, Lord, of where we were headed, like Barabbas, heading towards our own judgment for our sins. And you, Lord, absorbed the debt for us. And Lord, let that turn not only to gratitude, but to worship, to celebration, to those who just live in the joy of the Lord, knowing that we serve not only a crucified king, but a risen king. In Jesus' name.
Amen.